are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for listening to the Jefferson County News for the week of September 29th, 2022. My name is Gregory Haddock. For today's reading, we will be covering the following stories. Terumo ETO emissions could pose risk. EPA expresses long-term concerns by Andrew Fraley for the Jeffco Transcript. Wildfire Preparedness, a top priority for Sheriff Candidates by Deb Hurley-Brobst for the Jeffco Transcript. Eins, zwei, drei, howdy! Wild West Oktoberfest debuts in Golden by Corinne Westerman for the Golden Transcript. Stolen vehicle cameras going up. Jeffco Sheriff's Office to install 25 plate-reading cameras by Corinne Westerman for the Golden Transcript. Accused killer of officer appears in court. Preliminary hearing date set. Sealed warrants and affidavits could become unsealed by Riley Dunn for the Arvada Press and following up with miscellaneous articles. Tarumo ETO ET0 emissions could pose risk. EPA expresses long-term concerns by Andrew Fraley. The EPA and the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment voiced long-term cancer risk concerns for an area of Lakewood during a community meeting on September 22nd. They focused on ethylene oxide, or ETO, emissions from the Terumo Blood and Cell Technologies Sanitation Facility by Kipling Street and West Colfax Avenue in Lakewood. While the amount of ETO released by the facility is well within regulation, the EPA expressed concerns that current regulations are not protective enough. ETO is a common gaseous chemical used in sanitation of many medical supplies, including hospital gowns and surgical masks. At Terumo, it's used to sanitize machines and products used for blood testing and treatment. The regulations Terumo must adhere to, and EPA references, concerns the amount of ETO allowed to escape the sanitation facility into the air. The EPA stressed concerns with cancer risk in the long term. They see no short-term health risks. During the EPA presentation, representatives used extremes to portray risks, defining long-term impacts in their research looking at people living near the facility, breathing in ETO 24 hours a day from birth to age 70. Within that definition, Senior Risk Communication Advisor Madeline Beal said the EPA sees younger children and workers as having higher risk. Workers due to possibly of more direct long-term exposure and children because they are more vulnerable to the effects, she said. Considering the way ETO is used in Terumo's facility, the equipment handling it, information about the community and weather patterns, the EPA created a, quote, lifetime residential cancer risk 
map around the facility. It shows a gradient starting at 600 cases in a million where residential neighborhoods start near the facility to 100 cases in a million at its farthest reaches. When asked whether Terumo accepts EPA's concern about the long-term cancer risk, Jesse Doan, Terumo's senior sterilization manager, said, quote, I think that contextual information is important because they say themselves that it shouldn't be looked at as an actual risk. They say this is a screening tool to see if there is additional risk, end quote. She also points out that there are other sources of ETO, including from cars and even from the body itself. Beal does highlight within the EPA presentation that their calculated risk is specifically from Terumo's facility emissions. And quote, we're calculating that risk over and above any of these other sources. What I think is pretty interesting and important is that CDPHE has conducted a review of the Cancer Registry of Colorado. And what they found was that the area around Terumo has no different incidences of cancer than any other area, Doan said. Christy Richardson, Colorado's state toxicologist at CDPHE, highlighted this, but stressed the study is limited. Quote, we may not be able to identify an increase in cancer cases, even if there is one, she said. That's because we may not have information on every person who's ever lived in this area, and there may be too few people living in the impacted area for us to be able to measure the difference in cancer in this community and compare that across the state. Terumo has voluntarily updated their ETO emission control systems. When EPA first released health risk concerns over ETO emissions in 2018, Terumo implemented controls that reduced emissions fivefold. But the EPA says more work is needed. According to Doan, another emissions control system that began work in 2018 will be running by 2023, replacing the current two systems. Carrie Hicks, EPA Air Toxics Coordinator for Region 8, said the new system will reduce emissions incrementally further and reduce risk in the community. Quote, although we do not anticipate it will eliminate all concerns. Quote, I think the EPA is doing what it's intended to do, said Doan. All emissions controls and emergency plans for ETO leaks are approved by CDPHE, she highlighted. The facility has continuous monitoring of ETO levels, monitor, monitors individual workers' exposures once or more a year, and said there were engineering controls preventing ETO leaks across the facility. The laws we have, the rules we have, the regulations we have now on the books are not protective enough, said Beale. And they're not protective enough because we didn't understand how dangerous this chemical was when we passed those regulations, end quote. She continued that more stringent regulations are being pushed in Colorado, and this push is why the EPA had the community meeting, which was recorded and can be found on their websites along with further information. Wildfire preparedness, a top priority for sheriff candidates by Deb Hurley Brobst. The two candidates wanting to be the next Jefferson County Sheriff and its countywide fire marshal agree that preparing for wildfire is important. 
especially in the Evergreen and Conifer area. The candidates, Regina Marinelli and Ed Brady, said if elected, they want to work immediately to begin addressing a collective response from all first responders in the county. In addition, Marinelli said she wanted the county to begin purchasing rather than renting equipment to place around the county so it would be available any time it was necessary. She also noted that all county law enforcement should have fire behavior training to make better decisions since they oversee evacuations. Marinelli and Brady answered audience questions at a September 21st forum by Mountain Foothills Rotary and the Canyon Courier, with about a third of them focused on wildfire preparedness and response. The person elected to the position will replace Sheriff Jeff Schrader, who is term limited and cannot run again. Election Day is November 8th, and mail-in ballots will be sent out in mid-October. Sheriffs serve four-year terms. Brady agreed that preparedness to fight wildfires was important, and he has heard from the fire chiefs and others that having countywide coordination is a concern. He called wildfire preparedness one of his top priorities. Quote, Certainly, I'm going to get on top of it day one. Brady said, I want to work with the Mountain Chiefs to address working collaboratively. Marinelli wants to return Jeffco's emergency response operations to their former nationally recognized status. We need to get to policies to where they should be rather than everybody working on their own script when it comes to wildfire. Marinelli said, I plan to cooperate with everybody. Despite major crimes being down in the county, both candidates agreed that they would not move money from the crime prevention budget to the wildfire preparedness budget. Brady said, since it was the county commissioner's responsibility for public safety, which included fire mitigation, they must commit budget dollars for that purpose. Marinelli suggested that counties should look for more federal grants to pay for more wildfire preparedness, noting that it was vital to keep the crime rates down. The candidates. Marinelli is a Colorado native who has pursued a career in law enforcement since middle school. She earned a degree in criminal justice and teaches. Marinelli has served on the Jefferson County Sheriff's Office for 36 years and supervised every major department. She and her husband, Bart, live in Jefferson County. Brady is a deputy chief with the Arvada Police Department, where he has served for 28 years. He has led through the Great Recession and officer death, officer-involved shootings, a pandemic, and his current public safety crisis. His wife, Kathleen, is a principal in Jeffco Public Schools, and they have four children. In response to questions, both listed the many incidents during, the, during which they were commanders and both had extensive experience teaching officers. Other issues. Both advocated for more mental health and drug and alcohol interventions in the county jail and for the homeless. Brady noted that addiction was the basis for many crimes, and he wanted to find solutions to help addicts so they don't return to the criminal justice system. They said departments need to better focus on more mental health resources for officers, especially after how traumatizing some of the calls they kill on can be. We have to approach Officer PTSD head-on, Marinelli explained. 
we can no longer deny that it's a threat, that it's there. They agreed that recruiting was vital because more officers are leaving the profession and that it was unethical for disadvantaged groups, minorities, and those with disabilities to be treated differently than others by law enforcement. Denver hit-and-run victim memorialized with Ghost Bike by Kyle Cook and Julio Sandoval for the Rocky Mountain PBS. On the morning of August 10th, Steve Perkins met his brother Dan at Cherry Creek Reservoir for a bike ride. It was something the 52-year-old identical twins would do about three or four times a week. Steve would bike from his home in Central Park and meet Dan, who came up from Littleton for a loop around the reservoir, and then they would go their separate ways, cycling back to their respective neighborhoods. After Steve said goodbye to his brother Wednesday, October 10th, August 10th, he was cycling north on Syracuse Street in Denver around 7 a.m. when a Ford Explorer traveling westbound on East 13th Avenue ran a red light and hit him. Steve, who had a green light and was riding in a bike lane, died from his injuries. The driver did not slow down and has not been found. Exactly two weeks after Steve's death, his family, friends, and fellow cyclists returned to the intersection where the driver killed Steve for a ghost bike dedication ceremony. Steve was, quote, more than just a brother, more than just a twin. Dan said at the ceremony Wednesday, August 24th, he was my best friend. Ghost bikes are all white bicycles that serve as roadside memorials in locations where cyclists have been killed, usually by drivers. The somber tradition began in the United States in the early 2000s and has since spread to more than 200 cities around the world. The ghost bike at 13th and Syracuse is adorned with a helmet and cycling jersey of Steve's, as well as white flowers on the rear tire rack. It's great to have something out here that I can drive past or ride past and see it and say, yeah, that was for him and he's still here with me, Dan said. And hopefully it means that people who come through this intersection will be jarred into remembering, hey, there are real lives out there and I need to be careful. Dan hopes that the bike captures drivers' attention and makes them realize the danger they pose to cyclists and pedestrians when they don't follow the rules of the road. Dan says he drives in addition to cycling, but that when he's in his car, he does not lose sight of the fact that he's operating a, quote, two or three ton missile that has the potential to do a lot of damage. If nothing else, drivers should put the phones down. Don't eat while you're driving. Pay attention to the roads. I know we're all in a hurry, but saving five or six seconds isn't going to make that much of a difference, but it might save a life. As for cyclists, Dan said he hopes the ghost bike serves as a reminder that, quote, unfortunately, you cannot count on the goodwill of drivers, even if you have the right of way like Steve did, end quote. Steve's death is a tragedy made more devastating by the fact that he did everything right as a cyclist. He was in a bike lane, following traffic signals and biking at a slower pace through the intersection when a driver hit him. Steve even had a camera mounted to his bicycle that captured video of the killer's Ford Explorer. Unfortunately, the car did not have a license plate. 
Pete Piccolo, the executive director of Bicycle Colorado, was at Wednesday's ceremony. We're here to shine a light on what is the preventable public health crisis that is traffic violence, he said. The loss of life is preventable. Denver experienced 84 traffic deaths in 2021, the highest number in at least a decade. 13 of those were hit and runs, a number the city has already eclipsed this year. The Denver Police Department told Rocky Mountain PBS that so far in 2022, there have been 57 traffic fatalities in the city and 14 of those involved incidents involved a hit and run. According to Piccolo, Colorado was on track to record around 15 to 20 cyclist deaths this year. Below is a photo of the car that hit Steve. Quote, this killing has to stop, Piccolo said, adding that Colorado does not lack the resources to make roads safer. Rather, he said, the state's political leaders lack the compassion to do so. Speaking about the streets where Steve was killed, Piccolo suggested making East 13th Avenue a two-way streets. Currently, the street is a wide two-lane, one-way road that Piccolo said invites people to speed due to the lack of stop signs and traffic calming measures like roundabouts or speed bumps. He suggested making the road a two-way road in order to cull speeding and reckless driving. The governor is not going to listen to me, but he'll listen to all of you, Piccolo told the crowd at Steve's ghost bike ceremony, encouraging them to advocate for safer streets. The crowd included many cyclists who arrived via bike, Piccolo said he saw some familiar faces, and Dan said he was both surprised and not surprised by the large number of people in attendance. Dan was surprised because the ceremony took place during a workday, but not surprised because Steve was, in Dan's words, quote, a consummate great guy. I know that sounds cliche, but he really was the kind of guy that would do just about anything for someone in need, Dan said. I'm not surprised that there were that many people available to be here because he knew that he was that guy. Everybody who knew him loved him, and it didn't surprise me that they would want to say goodbye in a special circumstance like this. A husband, father, and attorney, Steve Perkins, was also a serious cyclist. In addition to riding with his brother several times a week, he completed three Ironman triathlons, which include 112-mile bike rides, one of Steve's sons recently developed an affinity for cycling, too. For Dan, riding his bike following Steve's death has been difficult. He told Rocky Mountain PBS that he has gone on a one bike on one ride in the last two weeks, but it was on a it was a gravel ride. He hasn't ridden on the street yet. I know I'll be back on the roads one of these days. It's just a matter of when I'm comfortable with it, when my wife is comfortable with it, Dan said because Steve would hate it if I let his death keep me from doing something I really loved. He would probably tell me, keep doing it, but be careful. This story is from Rocky Mountain PBS, a nonprofit public broadcaster providing community stories across Colorado over the air and online, used by permission. For more and to support Rocky Mountain PBS, visit rmpbs.org. Voting Questions Answered, How to Vote and More, by Sandra Fish, The Colorado Sun. 
Colorado Election Day is November 8th, with a U.S. Senate seat, eight congressional contests, contests, races for four statewide offices, 100 state legislative jobs, 11 ballot initiatives, and more at stake at the county and local levels. As part of our 2022 election guide, we're here to answer some questions about voting and how the election works. Let us know what other questions you have by filling out the form at the bottom of this article, and we'll do our best to answer them. How do I register to vote? Colorado has automatic voter registration if you get a driver's license or interact in some other way with state government. But you may also register online with a valid driver's license, Colorado identification card, or social security number. Is there a deadline to register? No. Coloradans may register in person or online to vote through Election Day. To receive a ballot in the mail, you must be registered by October 31st, and you will have to return it to a Dropbox or Vote Center. How do I check whether I'm registered? Check your voter registration by entering your name, zip code, and date of birth. You may also change your address online, but if your name changed, you'll have to fill out a paper form. If your registration says it's inactive, that's because you've missed voting more than once or your ballot was returned as undeliverable. You may re-register online or by submitting a paper request. When will my ballot arrive? October 17th is the first day that ballots will go out in the mail to registered voters and must all be mailed by October 21st. If you want to receive a ballot in the mail, you must register by October 31st. If your ballot doesn't arrive, contact your county clerk. What if I don't receive a ballot in the mail? Contact your county clerk's office and they will be able to help you. How do I return my ballot? Once you've filled out your ballot, sealed it in the return envelope and signed and dated the envelope, put it in the mail or take it to one of the 400 drop boxes or 350 voting centers. Most voters drop their ballots off. Your ballot must be received by 7 p.m. November 8th. The Colorado Secretary of State's office says ballots should be delivered in person, not mailed, after November 1st. You may sign up to use Ballot Tracks, T-R-A-X, and you'll receive an email, text, or both when your ballot is accepted. What if I want to vote in person? More than 350 voting centers will open October 24th at the latest. Some counties may open earlier. Contact your county clerk for nearby locations and hours when you may vote in person. Polls are open Saturday, November 5th, Monday, November 7th, and from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. on Election Day, November 8th. Do I need identification to vote? If you vote in person or are voting by mail for the first time, you must present identification such as a driver's license, U.S. passport, or other identification on this list. Where can I find more information? To register online, check your current registration and get key election information. GoVoteColorado.gov is the place to start. It includes a variety of election information. Where can I get more information about the state questions on the ballot? Every election, the ballot information booklet, known as the Blue Book, is produced by the state. 
It provides voters with impartial analysis of each initiated or referred constitutional amendment, law, or question on the ballot. It includes a summary of the measure, arguments for and against, and a brief fiscal assessment. Download a copy at bit.ly slash 2xjpqad. This story is from the Colorado Sun, a journalist-owned news outlet based in Denver and covering the state. For more and to support the Colorado Sun, visit coloradosun.com. The Colorado Sun is a partner in the Colorado News Conservancy, owner of Colorado Community Media. Eins, zwei, drei, howdy. Wild West Oktoberfest debuts in Golden by Corinne Westerman. After a 30-year absence, Golden's Oktoberfest made a unique comeback this weekend. Bavaria met the American West in downtown Golden, September 24th, at the inaugural Wild West Oktoberfest. The activities and fashion was a mix of both styles, as some attendees wore dirndl dresses and lederhosen, while others donned cowboy hats and boots. Yo, Colorado, an apparel outfitter located at 805 12th Street, partnered with other local businesses to host the event. Proceeds benefited the Golden Civic Foundation. The Colorado's, the community's first Oktoberfest, which was held in 1978, raised funds for the Golden Chamber of Commerce, according to transcript archives. The event was considered a success with approximately 8,000 attendees over two days. The festival was then held annually until 1993. Weather cooperated this year as hundreds turned out to celebrate Oktoberfest with a Western flair. Yo, Colorado staff members and volunteers were thrilled to bring the event back, and the Golden Civic Foundation board members were happy to have the proceeds go back into the community. Nonprofit representatives worked the beer tent where eight types of brews were on tap, including several local favorites. Additionally, local food vendors were on hand to dish out Goldenite's favorite burgers, burritos, ice cream flavors, and more. Children took turns riding the mechanical bull, and some adults tried their hand at the Steinholding competition. Under the main tent, various Bavarian and cowboy-inspired musicians serenaded the attendees throughout the day. Stolen vehicle cameras going up. Jeffco Sheriff's Office to install 25 plate-reading cameras by Corinne Westman. The Jeffco Sheriff's Office plans to install up to 25 license plate reading cameras in unincorporated parts of the county to identify stolen vehicles and those connected to Amber Alerts and other criminal cases. This will be part of a free one-year pilot program with Flock Group Inc., which offers automatic license plate reader technology to law enforcement. These cameras would be installed throughout Jeffco, including an unincorporated South Jeffco in the West Pleasant View and Applewood areas between Golden and Arvada and the Genesee and Evergreen areas. If JCSO wants to continue the program after a year, costs would be factored into future department budgets. Patrol Division Chief Scott Poxick described during a September 13th briefing with the county commissioners. 
The commissioners gave their approval for JCSO to move forward with the pilot program's license agreement with the Board of, Direct- Board of County Commissioners will need to approve in a future meeting. Poxic described how several law enforcement agencies around the Denver metro area are using these cameras already or will be soon. Golden Police Department, for instance, has had great success with theirs over the last year or so, he explained. Homeowner associations, such as the one on Lookout Mountain, have been installing them too. The cameras take a picture of each license plate and then run it against those entered in a national database for stolen vehicles and the like. If there's a match, JCSO is alerted immediately. Quote, based on that alert, we'd be able to respond to that area in a more tactical way, Poxic told the commissioners. The best case would to be, be to stop that vehicle at our advantage. We want to avoid a pursuit. Considering the massive increase in stolen vehicles in and around Jeffco, Poxic said these cameras will be good tools for JCSO. He added that it can also be used to identify suspect vehicles based on a basic description, such as a blue Honda Civic with a sticker on the driver's side, and can be an investigative tool in that respect. Quote, if we get a description of a vehicle used in the crime, we can put that information into the system, and it'll cross-reference against vehicles that have passed by our cameras, he continued. Commissioners Leslie Dahlkemper and Andy Kerr wondered whether there were any privacy issues related to the cameras or whether they could be used to identify vehicles with expired license plates or other minor infractions as red light cameras do. Poxic confirmed the data is housed on a government server only for 30 days and then automatically deleted. JCSO would own the data and might share information with other law enforcement agencies in specific cases, but would never share it with the private sector, he said. He also described how JCSO has been using license plate reading cameras in patrol vehicles for 20 plus years without major concerns. The license plate must be entered into the national database for JCSO to receive any alerts, so expired license plates wouldn't qualify. Voters may end, quote, lunch shaming. Proposition on fall ballot could mean free meals for school children. By Sonia Gutierrez, Rocky Mountain PBS. When Maria Judith Alvarez's son was in elementary school, he once returned home from school with his lunch number written on his wrist. It was the school's way of letting Alvarez know that her son owed lunch money. They weren't going to give him any more food until I went to pay off the debts, Alvarez told Rocky Mountain PBS in Spanish. At the time, the family only had one car and one cell phone that Alvarez's husband used most of the time for his job. Quote, maybe they tried to get in touch with us with a phone call or a voicemail, she said, but with my husband working, you know how some men are, they don't always answer the phone. Alvarez went to the school the following day to pay off the debt and put more money in her son's account. I wanted him to feel confident next time he stood in line for a school lunch, she said. Eight years have passed since that happened, but Alvarez said her son still doesn't like to eat school lunch. He waits until he comes home to eat, Alvarez explained. Her story and the stories she hears from many other moms in the Glenwood Springs 
are what motivated her to advocate for healthy school meals for all, a program that voters will decide on in the upcoming November election. If voters approve Proposition FF, the state will create the Healthy School Meals for All program, which will provide free school meals to students in public schools, provide grants for participating schools to purchase Colorado-grown, raised, or processed products, increase wages or provide stipends for employees who prepare and serve school meals, and create parent and student advisory committees to provide advice to ensure school meals are healthy and appealing to all students. A no vote on Proposition FF means the current method of funding school meals will be will continue. Where a family of four needs to be making less than $51,000 a year to qualify for free school lunch. The program will be funded by limiting state income tax deductions for households that bring in more than $300,000 a year. Ashley Whelan, Director of Public Policy for Hungry Free Colorado, is an advocate of this ballot measure. We know that when kids have food, they learn, they do better, have less behavioral issues, and it did decreases childhood hunger when school meals are available to any kid who needs it in school, she said. As part of COVID-19 relief, the federal government covered the cost of school lunch meals for all students over the last two years. However, that funding expired ahead of the 2022-23 school year, and all school districts in Colorado, except for Greeley-Evans County School District 6, returned to charging students for school lunch, except those who qualified for free or reduced lunch. This ballot measure would continue that relief families felt for school lunches throughout the state. If passed, it will only impact the schools that sign up for the program. If I'm being honest with you, families need to make the hard decision of paying for rent or food, Alvarez said. I have four jobs to be able to provide for my children. We all think about the basic necessities, where to sleep, a roof over our heads, what to wear, what to eat. But one of those necessities is always affected to be able to provide fully for them. End quote. The story is from Rocky Mountain PBS, used by permission. Local life, it's all about fall. In suburbs and off rural roads, autumn events provide family memories. By Ellis Arnold. Dustin Smith and his wife grew up spending time at their grandparents' farms, but many years later, the Smiths' kids weren't getting that same experience. So the Smiths opened The Patch, a farm in Elbert County that puts on fall festivities and provides a chance for kids to throw horseshoes, learn about tractors, and pick up crafting skills such as how to spin wool. We really like the generational aspect of what we do, said Smith, whose farm has offered the event since 2017. The patch features a corn maze, a pumpkin patch, and the chance to meet farm critters, according to its website. Also part of the fun, a hay wagon ride, apple cannons, roping, and cornhole. Dustin Smith's dad, affectionately called Grandpa Smith, often comes out from Kansas to help at the farm. And when he was at Subway Restaurant back in Wichita, somebody recognized his shirt and asked whether he was part of the patch. Quote, they had said that Grandpa Smith had played with their grandson from Castle Rock, and on their way home, the grandson asked where he could, quote, buy a Grandpa Smith because he had so much fun, Dustin said. 
He added, quotes, even as far as Wichita just shows that people love to connect. People come to the farm from all over, roughly from as far as Broom, far north as Broomfield, as far west as Conifer, as far south as Colorado Springs, and as far east as Burlington, along with some attendees from out of state, Smith said. The farm sits in the Elizabeth area, east of Douglas County. The event has become a staple for some who say they've come every year, Dustin said. It's the memories that they're going to have for the rest of their lives. This is how the grandparents are going to remember their grandkids, how the grandkids are going to remember their grandparents, Dustin said. Just family time together. The public can visit the Patch Farm for tickets or call 720-446-6001 with questions. The farm sits at 39980 Foxtrot Circle, several miles north of State Highway 86. The patch opened for the season September 17th and is open 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. Saturdays and Sundays and 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. Thursdays and Fridays. Annual Tradition in Weld Up north in Weld County, a longtime fall event arose out of a deep agricultural history. Quote, my grandpa and his brother bought the property in 1958, said Rochelle Wegela, the operations manager for Anderson Farms in the Erie area. The location was, quote, really a tenant farm for my family from the 1950s up until the pumpkin patch started in 1997, Wegela said. Tenant farming is a system where landowners contribute their land while tenants contribute their labor. We actually farmed closer to Mead, and that's where I grew up, Wegela said referring to a town farther north. Her father started the pumpkin patch event because some friends in another state were holding pumpkin patches and telling him how fun it was, Wiggle said. Today, the farm's fall festival includes a corn maze, wagon rides to the pumpkin patch, a pumpkin cannon, farm animals, and many other attractions, according to its website. Quote, A lot of families have made it an annual tradition, Wiggle said. It's something that the whole family can do from little kids up to grandparents. Families just look forward to it every year. The festival is running through October 31st, and it's open every day except Tuesdays. Call 303-828-5210 for questions or see andersonfarms.com, Anderson with an O, for tickets and hours which vary. The farm is limiting the number of tickets available per day, so people should buy tickets ahead of time to make sure they can get in this season, Wegela said. The farm sits at 6728 County Road, three and a quarter, west of Fort Lupton and west of Interstate 25. Suburbs Meet Rural Feel Started in 2001, Maze in the City provides a rural fall atmosphere near the edge of Thornton. The event features a 20-acre corn maze, a mini maze, and a variety of local grown pumpkins, gourds, and, quote, other fall decor, its website says. It also offers many other attractions, including sand art, a corn launcher, five-minute escape rooms, and pony rides, according to its website. The event takes place at 104th Avenue and McKay Road, a short drive east of Colorado Boulevard. It opened for the season September 24th. See mazeinthecity.com. That's maze with an I. Mazeinthecity.com for tickets and other details. New event down south. 
In Douglas County, the relatively new fall festivities at Lone Creek Farms includes a large array of activities. Among them are, quote, pumpkin jump pads, tire swings, a large pedal cart racetrack, panning for gemstones, a corn maze, and hay wagon rides, according to the farm's websites. And, of course, there are pumpkins for sale. Since 2018, we have strived to create a fun, family-friendly environment for the fall season. We are a family-owned business, and from our family to yours, we hope to create memories that will last from year to year, the website says. Lone Creek Farms is open from 10 a.m. to 7 p.m., Thursdays to Sundays through October. For tickets, see LoneCreekFarms.com. The location has a Franktown address of 3879 North State Highway 83 and sits in the East Castle Rock area north of State Highway 86. And Chatfield area events. Southwest of Littleton in unincorporated Jefferson County, the Pumpkin Festival at Chatfield Farms offers a pumpkin patch and corn maze. An antique tractor exhibit by Front Rage Antique Power Association. Hay rides in an obstacle course, according to the festival's webpage. See tinyurl.com slash Chatfield Farms Festival for tickets. Or call 720-865-3500 with questions. The festival runs 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. October 7th through 9th at 8500 West Deer Creek Canyon Road, just southwest of Wadsworth Boulevard and the C-470 Highway. Accused killer of officer appears in court. Preliminary hearing date set sealed warrants and affidavits could become unsealed by Riley Dunn. Sonny Almanza, the suspect Arvada, in Arvada police officer Dylan Vakoff's murder, appeared in Jefferson County District Court before Judge Russell B. Klein on September 20th for an advisement hearing where Almanza was made aware of the charges he faces in connection with the events of September 11th. First Judicial District Attorney Alexis King has charged Almanza with three counts of murder in the first degree of a peace officer after deliberation with intent, extreme indifference for Vakoff's murder, two counts of attempt to commit murder in the first degree against Mercedes Lopez, who was previously identified as a, quote, female victim by the APD. Almanza was also charged with assault in the second degree against Lopez, possession of a weapon by a previous offender, using a prohibited large-capacity magazine during a crime, first-degree criminal trespass, and two counts of crime of violence. Upon arrest, Almanza was charged with two counts of child abuse, neither of which appear on the finalized complaint. The First Judicial Critical Incident Response Team is investigating the use of force by Officer Vakoff in the incident while the Arvada Police Department is investigating Vakoff's murder and the attempted murder of Lopez. Arvada Police confirmed that Lopez, who was hospitalized for a gunshot wound incurred during the incident, was released from the hospital last week in stable condition. Other developments in the case of the people of the state of Colorado versus Sonny Almanza. On September 19th, the people filed a motion not objecting to the court unsealing the sealed affidavit and warrants. The court set a deadline for September 23rd for the defense to respond. 
either consenting or objecting to the unsealing. At that time, the court will review the response and either decide the matter via a written response or set the matter for hearing. There is currently a protection order in place prohibiting Almanza from contacting his children. Almanza filed a request to vacate the protection order. The people will respond to that request in writing by September 23rd. The court also set a date for hearing on any written motions uh, filed either by either party pertaining to the preliminary hearing. That hearing is scheduled for 1.30 p.m. October 7th. Finally, the preliminary hearing and proof evident presumption great hearing is set for 8 a.m. November 9th. The outcome of that hearing will determine if Almanza qualifies for bail. Another factor that would determine his bail status is if the court finds that the public would be placed in peril if he were released. Dry Land Dives Into the Deep End Coming Attractions by Clark Reader One of the great things about theater is its ability to reflect the challenges and convulsions of society with the speed and alacrity that most other performing arts mediums just aren't capable of achieving. That fact is highlighted by Benchmark Theater's regional premiere production of Ruby Ray Spiegel's Dry Land which runs at the Theater 1560 Teller Street in Lakewood through Sunday, October 8th. Performances are at 8 p.m. Thursday through Saturday and 2 p.m. on Sunday. Dry Land tackles the timely topics of abortion, female friendship, and much more. We spoke to Haley Johnson, Executive Director at Benchmark, about the show. Answers edited for brevity and clarity. Tell me about selecting Dryland to be part of Benchmark's season. When Texas enacted the Texas Heartbeat Act on September 1st, 2021, we knew that a play like Dryland couldn't be more relevant. Of course, we didn't have the foresight of what was to come from the U.S. Supreme Court in June of 2022. As a result, Dryland is eerily timely, probably more so than any of the plays in the rest of our season. What is the show about? Dryland is a story that follows teammates on a Florida high school girls swim team. Underage and pregnant, Amy has enlisted the help of Esther as she is unable to obtain an abortion without her mother's consent. Tell me about the cast. We have a phenomenal cast that are all new to the Benchmark Theater stage. Director Abby Apple Bowes selected a group of artists that have been a delight to work with and really brought the story to urgent life. The play sits in realism and honesty, and every member of this five-person cast has done a tremendous job grounding themselves in a genuine and raw performance. The show has an all-female, non-binary creative team. How did that affect the way you told this particular story? It was very important to us that we had the right voices around the creative table. Surrounding ourselves with female and non-binary artists, we were able to focus on the artistry of the show from a perspective that everyone could relate to on some level. This is a story about teenage girls and the adversity they face. Inherently, having female and non-binary voices to support the artistry of the show was vital. What do you hope audiences come away with? I hope audiences leave the theater with perhaps a sober understanding of the lengths to which some people may need to stretch to make the choice that's right for them. The playwright does a careful and intentional job of not politicizing this play, 
We simply want to present the piece as a cautionary tale and a reminder that what happens in this fictitious story is all too real in high schools, summer camps, and bedrooms all across the nation and beyond. For more information and tickets, visit BenchmarkTheater.com. LSO celebrates works of the cello. The Liquid Symphony Orchestra is getting into its new season in a thrilling way with the upcoming cellist's favorite performance, which will be held at 7.30 p.m. on Thursday, October 6th at the Lakewood Cultural Center, 470 South Allison Parkway. The concert will feature cellist Soyan Min performing Elgar's Concerto for Cello in E Minor, Opera 85. Min, a South Korean native, has been principal cello of the Colorado Symphony Orchestra since 2019 and has performed with a range of international ensembles. All the details and tickets can be secured at lakewoodsymphony.org. Walker Fine Art examines the natural world. There's a reason so many people are worried about the state of the climate and environment. Mixed in with all the beauty the world offers are danger and fear about the future of the planet. Environmental Reflections The latest exhibit at Walker Fine Art, 300 West 11th Avenue, number A in Denver, gives six artists, Teresa Close, Elaine Coombs, George Cosman, Brian Leister, Heather Patterson, and Zelda Zinn, the opportunity to explore their understanding and appreciation of landscape, climate, and habitat. The exhibit runs at the gallery through Saturday, November 18th. Find all the information at walkerfineart.com. And Clark's Concert of the Week, Night Moves at Red Rocks. I have a pretty firm rule that if the name of your band references Bob Seger's best song and one of the best songs ever written, I'm going to be inclined to give your band a chance. Over the last decade or so, the Minneapolis-based group Night Moves have fine-tuned their approach to reverb-drenched roots rock. Their 2019 album, Can You Really Find Me?, is home to some of the year's best songs, and their recently released The Redaction EP hints at great things ahead. The group swings by Globe Hall, 4483 Logan Street in Denver at 8 p.m. October 6th. Get tickets at globehall.com. Clark Reader's column on culture appears on a weekly basis. He can be reached at clark.reader at hotmail.com. Colorado adds water quality protections for South Platte, Clear Creek. Overturns 2020 ruling by Michael Booth of the Colorado Sun. The Colorado Water Quality Control Commission unanimously reversed a controversial 2020 decision and added new pollution protections for the South Platte River and Clear Creek through Metro Denver, citing a compelling campaign by environmental justice advocates who demanded the repeal. The vote on September 13th adds new defenses for urban streams and culminates a two-year campaign by a broad coalition of conservation groups, racial and economic justice advocates, and local, state, and federal officials to overturn the 2020 ruling. That year's ruling had said existing polluters could discharge more waste into the urban streams without new state anti-degradation reviews. Now those permitted polluters, including Metro Water Recovery and Molson Coors 
will have to prove any new actions won't further damage the Denver area streams where aquatic life is already troubled by runoff, pollution, discharge, and high temperatures. The hearings this week were the result of the commission previously agreeing to review arguments from its own staff and the outside coalition, including Colorado Parks and Wildlife and the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, that their 2020 decision had essentially written off urban streams as hopeless. This is a historic moment for Colorado. To my knowledge, this is the first successful petition from an environmental or environmental justice group to a state health agency, said Ian Tafoya, Green Latino's Colorado State Director. Impacted communities are empowered, organized, and partnered with allies. We are committed to using every procedural tool and in every venue available to us to achieve environmental justice. End quote. Anti-degradation rules that will now apply to the stretches of the South Platte River and Clear, Clear Creek put those waters into the reviewable category. That rule, says polluters, seeking a new or renewed water quality permit must make a compelling argument that worsening the conditions of a stretch of river is an unavoidable part of an important economic development or civic improvement. They must offer this proof even if the given stretch of water is already better than EPA water quality minimums. The state rules effectively raise the floor of quality as a stream improves and says those waters can't be degraded below the new floor. Decades of intense and expensive cleanup efforts on urban streams like the South Platte, including by Metro Wastewater, have improved water quality and given the river a chance at more fish, wildlife, and recreation, the environmental advocates say. The state's job is to keep pushing for even cleaner water, the environmental coalition who brought the petition said, not to clear the way for backsliding. The commissioners Tuesday also scolded Molson Coors and others who had spent the hearing arguing against the new protections for stretches of Clear Creek, which passes the Golden Brewery and the South Platte River north of the Denver boundary. I am offended that a company that makes its profit and markets its brand off the clean water of this state would work so hard to prevent protections for that clean water. Commission Chair April Long said before the final unanimous vote to upgrade the stretches of stream to reviewable waters. Commissioner Jennifer Bach cited compelling testimony in favor of stronger protections that came Monday during the first day of a two-day hearing from Metro residents who used the South Platte River and Clear Creek for fishing, boating, and cycling. Those users joined with the Environmental Coalition to argue the urban streams were abused for decades by polluters and developers who paved and contaminated the waterfront. The waters are now recovering and can come back even further if afforded the right protections, and neighbors of the streams say they deserve that chance. Quote, the Water Quality Control Commission's decision highlights that no river is beyond repair. These protections recognize decades of work to restore water quality on the South Platte and Clear Creek from the impacts of industrial pollution, said Josh Kuhn, Conservation Colorado Water Campaign Manager. This is an important step toward ensuring all of Colorado's communities have equitable access to clean water, end quote. The initial 2020 decision and a commissioner's statement at the time that higher protections were reserved for, quote, pristine mountain waters 
infuriated a coalition of dozens of conservation groups and local governments, from Colorado Green Latinos to Trout Unlimited to Denver City Council members. They wrote to Governor Jared Polis last year, arguing that the statewide commission was, quote, prioritizing the industrial profits over the safety and well-being of residents who have been historically disproportionately affected by pollution, end quote. When the commissioners late in 2021 agreed to set a hearing to revisit the decision, the commission staff told the advocacy groups it was the first time in their knowledge of the commission's history that petitioners had successfully forced such a reversal. This story is from the Colorado Sun, a journalist-owned news outlet based in Denver and covering the state. Thank you for listening to the Jefferson County News. My name is Gregory Haddock. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.